It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is The Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation, and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Today, we are extremely honored and excited to have Dr. Petra Devlar on. Dr. Petra is a naturopathic doctor certified in functional medicine. She practices deutonomic medicine, which is the science of water movement within the body. She was born and raised in the Netherlands and moved to New York in her 20s. She has spent eight years in California, where she graduated from Bastyr University in 2016. And after four years of seeing patients in Santa Monica, she currently only consults patients via telemedicine. Since 2021, her credentials have also been recognized and certified in Hungary, which extends to most other European countries as well. She is known for her in-depth research and detailed follow-through on each and every one of her patients. Her passion for seeking truth guides her to understand how we can do better in restoring patients' health. And I know we're just scratching the surface with all of that, but welcome to the podcast. We're really honored to have you today. Uh, thank you so much, Chloe. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. And so I love just jumping right in and asking, you know, what motivated you in the first place to get into this specific topic we're going to talk about today? So great question. My mom was diagnosed with a form of cancer back in oh, wow. um, 2016, early 2016. And I, I'm sorry, it was 17 already. Yep. And so I, um, I, I remembered um, uh, knowing, I felt like we, we needed more, we, we needed more answers and there, there are better answers. And I remembered hearing back in 2014 when I was in medical school about deuterium and its effects and its role with cancer. But back then I had no time to look at it. So this of course was entirely different. And I opened up, you know, every book, every resource, resource that I could find. And I learned everything as soon as I could to try and um, yeah, make change happen for my mom. Oh my so, gosh. Wow. That's, that's a rough story. And I mean, it's, it's very admirable that you, you know, you took that into your own hands and started researching 
or your mom. I know a lot of people I bring on the podcast usually have some kind of background for themselves or, you know, some kind of health history, something that they wanted to fix within their own um, life. But to, yeah. to be motivated. It's not about me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, due to deuterium and, and all of its research was turned out to be so fundamental to everyone's health, which is why I chose to entirely focus my practice um, in the middle of of 2018 only on deuteronomics because nothing can be corrected without um, this foundational piece. I love that. So, so let's go ahead and start the foundation. Let's lay the foundation. So what is deuteronomics and what is deuterium? Okay. So the term deuteronomics was coined in 2019 by Dr. Laszlo G. Borosh and was first introduced at the International Congress of Deuterium Depletion in Budapest. Um, So deuteronomics is this interdisciplinary approach to medical biochemistry. So it it is, like you said, the the science of how water moves in our bodies. Now, why is water movement important, you may ask. So um, I came across this really fascinating paper entitled Water and Life, The Medium is the Message. And um, this is by Frankel and Pinter and colleagues from NASA and Georgia Tech in 2021. And it expands on the role of water in the human body and biology. So I just want to kind of um, tell you about the four main takeaways that I I felt were so um, uh, important in highlighting why water is crucial for us and, and the movement of it. So they define water as the chemical cornerstone of biological processes. And they challenge the notion or even the possibility uh, of an inert um, biological solvent. So, you know, if you've had any medical backgrounds, most of the biochemistry books will often assume, not even mention that there's water you know, that's part of a reaction, but in fact, it's never inert. It always plays a role. So they, they clearly state that. Um, they call water the most frequent and dominant chemical actor in all of metabolism. Um, and a given water molecule frequently and repeatedly serves as a reaction substrate, an intermediate, a cofactor, and product. And between a third and half of the known biochemical reactions involve consumption or production of water. So now let me introduce deuterium. So water is H2O, two hydrogens and one oxygen atom. Hydrogen has a stable isotope, meaning it is an atom just like hydrogen, but it contains a neutron, making it twice as heavy and the nucleus is twice as large. This makes it a very different element, and that is why it has its own name. We've known for a very long time that deuterium has various biological effects, but these were not considered critical for disease-causing processes, um, nor the um, water chemistry in our body. But in the last few years, it has become very evident that the effects of deuterium are highly significant, and we call these effects the kinetic isotope effects. So some of these include basic properties 
alisophil, um, the presence of deuterium affects the freezing, the thawing, and boiling temperatures of water. Um, nice. Yep, yeah, deuterium also makes water more viscous. Um, a reaction will proceed much slower, if not at all, um, when there is a large amount of deuterium present in the water. So here you can think, for instance, of heavy water. I don't know if you ever heard this term, but um, yeah, so heavy water was it is used in nuclear plants to slow down the reaction. So that is exactly how you can think of what it does. Um, deuterium also uh, affects the bonding strength and the affinities of types of compounds it can bind or other atoms it wants to bind. It's all alters. So for instance, if you think of um, a bond between deuterium and another carbon, like uh, another atom like carbon, um, the bonding, um, the binds two to three times stronger, and it's maybe 10 to 15 times more difficult to break that bond if it is um, hydrogen um, rather than, if it's deuterium rather than hydrogen. So um, it, it's, it's a very significant uh, difference. And, and the last thing I'll say about it is that there are, of course, other isotopes of carbon, of oxygen, but um, the significant and unique isotope position of, of deuterium and hydrogen is that it's 100% different in weight. And none of the others are. So that is what makes it so significant. Um, now, let me give you a sense of, of concentration of deuterium in waters. Yes. Um, okay. So um, the way we express concentration is parts per million, so or ppm, we say. So that um, generally... Um, in most waters, in most drinking waters, both in Europe as well as in the US, um, it's about, the concentration is 150 parts per million. Oceanic water is 155, so that's higher. The vapor is higher as well. So that also affects coastal areas and the, the water that's, you know, that, that people breathe, um, that is also higher. Um, now, uh, water in the middle of continents and higher and higher altitudes is lower in deuterium. Um, okay. And so spring waters tend to be lower in approximately 140 parts per million. Um, and then we have mechanisms to deplete water of deuterium um, by repeated distillation under certain temperatures and pressure. This is an expensive process. It has to happen, you know, numerous times, and that's why this this type of water is so valuable. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I am a little curious, you know, what we're ingesting on a daily basis, you know, bottled water or even well water. I know some people uh, do that. Are we consuming like massive amounts of deuterium in just our drinking water every day? 
Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, so so this is uh, what's so interesting, and, and we'll we'll come to um, some of these pieces in in further in our conversation. But yeah, so as um, time has progressed, so if we, for instance, think about fifteen thousand years ago, um, it is believed from all of the samples that we have from that time period that the um, oceanic water vapor was ten to fifteen ppm lower than it is today. So we have evolved right to adjust to that but our lifestyles and our food um, have drastically changed in the last you know 100 years or so and um, the changes we've made have not really allowed us to effectively excrete these excess levels and and kind of flush them out and regulate deuterium in our bodies in a way that allows for optimal functioning. So um, because of that, the uh, amount of deuterium that is now coming in is, is much higher and we cannot easily let go of that. So um, yeah, drinking regular water and, and whether it's bottled, because most bottled, there is no... Um, uh, regulation on that at all um, is probably around 150 ppm too. So most people are drinking that. Yeah, unfortunately. Wow, that's crazy. Now, yeah. I want to get into, you know, what happens within the body and particularly within the cell, the mitochondria um, with deuterium accumulation. But really quick first, I did have yes. a side question because yeah. you mentioned um, this process of depleting deuterium from the water or deuterium depleted water is do you have any um like insight you could provide into that process of how that happens or if there's like some kind of device or is it just like a regular like industry process that they that they do I have a little bit of insight. Yes, currently, um, you know, the only way to obtain what we call therapeutic levels of deuterium depleted water is through buying it from these few companies that are providing this. And like I said, it is a really big process and it's, it's energy um, consumption is high in doing it. And then, of course, the shipping of it is also um, very costly and complicated, but um, th there really is no simple way right now to do it, but we do believe that it is possible and, and are working on ways of um, uh, eventually being able to provide, just like everybody can now have a reverse osmosis you know, small unit on their countertop, ideally we will have a unit that can create deuterium depleted water for us um, by simply separating the um, the heavy from the light water. And, and hopefully we can do that without going through this whole distillation process. So yeah, that's a process. But right now people are trying to freeze water in the, you know, and see if it separates and throw away the ice on, you know, on top uh, because it freezes earlier than regular water than light water does, but you really create very, very little of a difference. It's really not worth your effort. So you're better off buying a really good quality spring water. That's probably around 140 ppm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm actually really interested in that. So now let's go ahead and dive into, you know, what happens when we start accumulating so much of this deuterium within our cells. Yeah. So, um, 
it, it doesn't only affect mitochondria, but it's, it's very big, but it also uh, changes many other processes in the body, deuterium does. So, for instance, it will cause genome transformation. Now, you may know that DNA is made up of a backbone of sugars and um, ribose sugars, and those sugars can bind deuterium rather than hydrogens. And so if that happens... Um, as replication is taking place and deuterium gets incorporated in those, that will then, you know, transform that genetic information. And that alone can cause epigenetics, right? So we don't need to have necessarily um, inborn genetic variations that we're all checking because we also know that they may not express. But if you have a high level of deuterium in your body, that alone will affect your, you know, your, your genes. Um, it will also alter vitamin D metabolism, for instance. So um, as you may know, we produce um, vitamin D in our bodies through sunlight, um, uh, specifically UVB light that shines down on our skin and the photonic energy um, will start resonating the hydrogen bonds on the cholesterol molecule and then it will break open the carbon bonds between C9 and C10 and that becomes this secosteroid. This becomes vitamin D. Now, if there's deuterium on attached to that cholesterol molecule, the bond won't break. So you will not produce, you know, you, you will not be able to have sufficient levels of vitamin D. Um, it will also change your microbiome. Um, so particularly uh, pathogenic bacteria love to feed on deuterium. It's a growth factor for them. So think about yeast infections, right? Candida. So, so that is a growth factor for them. Um, it will also allow microorganisms to thrive. It can cause inflammation. Um, but but let's let's dial it back to the mitochondria. So so when deuterium accumulates inside the matrix of mitochondria, which we call decumulation, that is the the key to that is that ultimately it prevents the production of deuterium depleted metabolic water. And that is the cause of the mitochondrial dysfunction. They will swell up and they become dysfunctional. And we know that 85 to 92% of all chronic diseases are caused by mitochondrial dysfunction. And this includes um, cardiovascular disease, autoimmune processes, neurological disease, mood disorders, and of course, cancer. Wow, wow. So we talked a little bit about well, no, first, first, I want to ask a little bit more about the microbiome, because that was that was really interesting when you were mentioning these pathogenic microbes um, feed off of deuterium. Um, can you go into that a little bit deeper? And then and then I wanted to get into some other stuff. But but yeah, yeah do you have of anything course. on that? Yeah. So the microbiome is there for us to deplete um, and, and, and take out the excess deuterium that comes in from the food we consume. And um, so if we, 
we consume a lot of carbohydrates, which are likely higher in deuterium, that will feed the pathogenic bacteria in the gut and produce, you know, it, it, it produces hydrogen sulfide gas. You know, um, uh, Stephanie Seneff has done a lot of work in this area and some of her presentations are really great and in-depth. So I refer I to her. her. On, the, on the podcast. Oh, did you? Okay, yeah. So she, <laughs> yeah, so she will be able to... Um, take all that down uh, and explain it even in greater detail than first you already did. So, yeah, but it's, it's a fascinating piece that people don't realize that that's what those bacteria are doing for us. They regulate yeah, no. deuterium. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why I was so interested in whenever you mentioned that. I mean, truly, it seems like when you can affect the mitochondria, it seems like it can affect just about every part of the body, but also the, the notion that the microbes actually feed off of it is pretty interesting. So, yeah, and no. viruses use it for hosting. You know, that's another piece. Um, and and there's another piece that I just briefly want to mention. Yeah. Um, you know, there has been this latest you know medical intervention used for um, modified RNA for us to. Um, produce the spike protein, and um, you know we actually have um, the theta polymerase that can create um, DNA and it reverse transcribes from RNA. So that this is why we are having this this persistent issue with um, individuals continuing to produce spike protein because they have now integrated it in their DNA. And, and we published this in 2021, um, got oh, very wow. little attention, but that's another piece to this. Yeah. Wow. That's extremely interesting. Yeah. So now kind of going back to the mitochondria, Yep. going back to energy production. So you were mentioning a lot about how deuterium really impacts the breaking of different bonds in these reactions. And we know that we need, you know, glycolysis, the TCA cycle, oxidative phosphorylation to even make ATP. So could you walk us through how deuterium impacts that? Yes. So when deuterium accumulates in cells, um, this has many consequences for the essential biochemical pathways that you just mentioned. So um, the biochemistry in our body really seems to have been designed in many different ways to separate deuterium from hydrogen and to prevent deuterium from entering mitochondria. So I'm, I'm going to go through the different processes and, and give you a little bit of a uh, flow of how this starts to break down um, by each process. So glycolysis um, can no longer deplete deuterium via its iso isomerization reactions because there is not enough deuterium depleted water available in the cytoplasm, right? So, so once, because it doesn't just go into the extra deuterium into the mitochondria, it's also populating the, um, the water in the cytoplasm that's there. So if that ratio changes, if there's more deuterium than hydrogen, then the, these isomerization reactions, which means it it's exchanges a very particular um, hydrogen on, on, on a um, carbohydrate glucose backbone, and that needs to be replaced, making sure that the deuterium comes off and that a hydrogen gets back on so that that doesn't go down to the TCA cycle. So that um, 
uh, if there is too much deuterium, it will pick back up a deuterium. So that process then is, is failing. Um, so then the TCA cycle, or also known as the Krebs cycle, will, if, if there's too much deuterium, it can no longer exchange hydrogens, again, effectively in, in its water exchange reactions because there's deuterium in the matrix. So again, all of these paths, all of these particular biochemical pathways are there specifically to deplete deuterium to make sure that it takes it out and doesn't, that cannot enter in mitochondria. That's why we had to memorize all that back in school. That was the function of them. So ultimately, this ratio of deuterium to hydrogen in cellular compartments is the key that influences cellular metabolism. So as deuterium increases in these compartments, um, successive breakdown of these processes takes place. And um, this is obviously very involved. And I will try and summarize a few, summarize a few key aspects. Um, but... Uh, yeah, this is a, a little bit deep in biochemistry, so, but here we go. Um, so a hydrogen ion is a hydrogen that is stripped off its electron, and now it carries a positive charge. And a hydrogen ion um, are H+, or also known as protons. Um, and here I like to quote the Hungarian scientist, Albert St. Georgi. Um, he said a beautiful thing, and I think it's very relevant. Life is about cycling protons, and the more effectively they move, the more efficient our bodies function. So <laughs> the way electron and protons can move uh, in our body is known as tunneling. And this is a quantum process, and it's basically the passing through a potential energy barrier. And um, this proton tunneling is affected by hydrogen bonds. And because of its size and weight and bonding strength, deuterium destroys that proton tunneling. So protons stop moving via tunneling. Protons cannot be harvested by NAD in the TCA cycle, nicotinamide, adenine dinucleotide, that's an electron carrier involved in you know, essential redox reactions and uh, a coenzyme that's totally uh, central to metabolism. Um, and then protons are no longer able to deliver electrons to complex one. Um, so then this, this goes on and, and this is, you know, in many different mitochondria, we have so many in so many cells. So, so you should see this in a very large, large picture. But um, when, when protons can no longer get into the matrix, they, they pile up. And then um, every one of those pathways starts backing up. And so that includes the um, TCA uh, metabolites. Um, it includes the pyruvate that starts to pile up outside of mitochondria. And then that is forced to go down the lactic acid pathway. Um, citrate will no longer be able to synthesize deuterium-depleted fatty acids, and carbon dioxide will pile up, and organic acids will pile up and start branching, and there's less transport of blood. All of this creates an acidic environment, and this is what we call metabolic crowding. This is the Warburg effect, and as a result... The yeah. oxidative phosphorylation also slows down, which means there is a reduction in ATP synthesis. 
And this also affects the rate of production of metabolic water via the reduction of oxygen. And in fact, it is this reaction that provides the most energy in mitochondria, releasing approximately 280 kilojoule per mole of energy, where ATP releases just between 20 to 30 kilojoule per mole. So this is quite a... um, revolution but it's crucial (laughs) so um that's that's the in very short uh my summary on what happens yeah i'm extremely interested in even just the warburg effect because and i know that's a little bit of a tangent but you know in my history of like biotoxin illness and um we hear about like cell danger response a lot and it sounds like this is really connected to that too this is it. It's about the deuterium in in the cells. That's the cell danger response. It it can it all comes down to this. Wow. In the end, yeah. Wow. So, okay. So we've talked a little bit about um, how deuterium can enter our body via like even just ingesting water, our water sources. But what? what happens or what can we do to kind of rev up the kind of discharge of it? How do we get it out of our body? Because right now, like we were kind of discussing at the beginning of the episode that it's a little bit out of our hands as far as technology goes and where we are in, in society to limit the amount of deuterium we consume. So how do we get it out? Okay, so so let's um, it's it's that's very important to know that, and I think where uh, where I want to start with that is first explain how we deplete naturally, right? So how do we normally excrete? So we know we get it in through the food we eat, the water we drink, to some extent the air we breathe, the light we are under, the quality of our sleep, the nutrients we ingest medicines all of it right but but let's just start here where how we normally excrete it so um uh as we already talked about the physical um biochemical processes like glycolysis tca cycle the urea cycle um but we do it through our breath and in our saliva and through our sweat and lacrimal glands we that's all how we release deuterium um, of course, in urine and in stool. Um, and as I already said, the microbiome clears it for you. The key would be not to get in too high of levels, right? That, that's, that's where it always first starts. Stop it from coming in in, in excessive amounts. Um, now, uh, sunlight exposure is very important. All of sunlight provides 42% infrared light. Um, infrared light um, has an ability to upregulate the um, complex four in mitochondria and produce um, increased levels of um, metabolic water. Um, living and in coherent. depleted. It is, but only if the food that's coming in is low in deuterium. If gotcha. you consume a high deuterium diet, that's not going to be possible, right? Okay. So that's the key to it, um, because all of those protons uh, that carry the electrons are coming from the food you consume or the nutrients you take in, 
Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so living in coherence with the circadian rhythms is another piece that's really crucial and to optimize your sleep because that's another um, mechanism by which we clear deuterium out from our system and are able to dispose it in the urine and you just, you know, let go of that in the morning. Um, you, you can clear it by body movements, um, you know, either dance or exercise or chiropractic or massage, um, and through breathing, all, all sorts of breathing methods. So you, you let it go once you have it in you. So, um, yeah, these are all ways that, uh, we can, excrete now as i said it's important to prevent it from coming in right um so um i don't know if you want to go any other place first or if i should go ahead and 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 tell you about other ways to um yeah so i i mean i'd love to hear a little bit more about the diet specifically you're talking about um a deuterium depleted diet and then, yeah, going going through all those other mechanisms to kind of limit the amount yeah. that's coming in. Yeah. So, so I want to uh, first state that I think we um, deuterium depletion is really important in a way, but I think ultimately it's about deuterium regulation because we do actually require deuterium, um, and this is coming from some really interesting papers um, from the Karolinski Institute, but um, we. Uh, use deuterium in connective tissue like collagen and bone to provide strength for us, right? It's ultimately um, what we need to figure out is how to regulate it in our body so it doesn't end up in the wrong places. Um, so so that's one piece of it. Um, then um, we should acknowledge, and most of us are utterly unaware of this, that we produce our own water. And so um, if we, we become clear on that, that this quality of the water that we produce will be dependent on the kind of foods that we eat um, that will be lower in deuterium, that is, is really helpful for us. Now, we produce um, 110 grams of deuterium-depleted water from 100 grams of fat. We produce half of that from carbohydrates, so just 55 grams of water from 100 grams of carbs. So so it's not only the quality of the food you consume, it is also very much the ratio of the types of food that you take in, right? And so this is where the power of the natural ketogenic diet, this is why it works. This is why people um, see so much benefit from that. It depletes deuterium levels for you very fast. yeah, so, so that's really interesting. But the amount of your own metabolic water that we produce, it, it depends on many factors. So first of all, the efficiency of your biochemical processes inside your cells, um, the deuterium that we already have accumulated, of yeah. course, the light that we are in, um, the heavy metals in our tissues, the glyphosate exposure. Um, but I would argue that perhaps one of the most important factors is the amount of fluids you consume. So it has become accepted knowledge that we are supposed to hydrate and hydrate some more. And in fact, we're told by many that we should consume as many ounces as half our body weight 
um, is in pounds, right? So an eight ounces is, is in a cup, 32 and a quart. So if you are 130 pounds, you're supposed to consume 64 or two quarts. Um, someone 180 pounds is supposed to drink 90 ounces or three quarts. However, this recommendation has no physiological or biochemical foundation. It is perhaps the beverage industry that has promoted this, right? So most water available in bottles are twice the price, if not more than the gas you put in your car. And in 2022, we actually consumed 446 billions of water, of bottled water in the world. Um, and the revenue of this bottled water in 2023 is expected to be $442 billion, of which $94 billion is generated in the USA. So make no mistake about it, this is an industry. And it's in fact, um, water, bottled water is the fastest growing sector of the, pa of the packaged beverage industry. So I, I think you should you know, take, keep that in mind. And um, then I wanted to share this other interesting um, paper that was published. It's by the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2016. And it was a study that they did, they call it a randomized trial um, to assess the potential of different beverages to affect hydration status. So they um, they took water, sparkling and still, orange juice, Coca-Cola, Diet Cola, low-fat milk, full-fat milk, a oral rehydration fluid, coffee, tea, and a sports drink. And so they had this group of uh, participants. They asked them to fast overnight, to only to not drink anything in the morning, and to um, uh, drink a liter of the assigned fluid that they were going to get in a half an hour time. And then they were going to collect <laughs> the urine output uh, over the next four hours. Okay. So, <laughs> what do you think happened? <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> so, so the short answer is, um, you peed out a lot more, um, especially if you drink water than you took in. So, <laughs> um, it's very, yeah, it's very interesting. So, um, basically all of the participants within the two hour, after two hours, they stopped collecting because it was clear that they were peeing out way more than they had taken in. So, um, all of them, uh, besides the full fat milk and the oral, um, rehydration solution, they, um, uh, had an output of 1.4 liters and they had only consumed one liter. So you're actually creating a negative hydration balance. Um, so it's fascinating. Um, but essentially what happens is if you drink too much water, you are uh, creating this state of diabetes insipidus. And, um, you know, this is a serious medical condition. And, and I, we like to argue that this excess intake of um, water and fluids is really uh, a huge um, factor in chronic disease. Not only are you deuterium loading, but you are also affecting many other processes. So one of these is if you drink this much outside liquid, mm -hmm. you downregulate anti-diuretic hormone. Um, and this has many different effects. 
it, it affects, you know, the electrolytes in, in your kidneys. It, um, it maintains blood pressure. It does all of these, these very specific roles, but it is secreted from a, uh, an area in the hypothalamus where you also release gonadotropin releasing hormone. And they, what, they do something called they localize. So if one gets secreted, the other one is. And if one gets suppressed, the other one is. So <laughs> I have clinically observed this in my practice um, where um, there were several young women who had shut down the production of steroid hormones and they stopped menstruating entirely just because they consumed too many liquids four to five quarts a day. And that antidiuretic hormone, which exactly. And you shut down gonadotropin releasing hormone and oxytocin and probably other hormones in that area as well. And so you, you have a massive endocrine effect when you drink too much water. And so this is really a very important consideration to make when we move forward. Wow. Yeah. And even with, again, going back to biotoxin mold, like that, the antidiuretic hormone is already off in those, those situations. So like, I know it how, is. How, yeah, so it like, always is in anybody with chronic disease. It always is off. Yeah. So this osmolality is off the osmolarity of the blood yeah. as well. So it's, yeah. it's really key that how you approach consuming liquids is entirely based on your sensation of thirst and of course this is different from for everyone right it depends on male female depends on your level of activity of the temperature you're in and so forth but but if you have that sensation sit with it for a little bit and let's see if if your body can compensate and actually increase the production of your own metabolic water and you know your thirst passes right and life becomes a lot easier if you don't drink all this much water you don't have to constantly stop for restroom stops you know and get up in the middle of the night and you know and so forth so that's another aspect just it saves time <laughs> and, and sleep you know so um but yeah it's it's a it's it's fascinating to think about it Wow. Yeah, no, it really is. What are some strategies that you might employ? I know you just mentioned one of them, kind of sitting with it for a little bit, but maybe do you do any kind of uh, electrolytes, ketone minerals, anything like that? Hydrogen water? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I like uh, ketone minerals. Yes, the quintessentials. They're, they're great. Um, I'm not sure what the deuterium content is, probably 155, but I do like the minerals and I think it's a really um, very, very useful um, uh, way to supplement and maintain minerals. Um, but, but yeah, but let's talk about how we can think about um, lowering deuterium from coming in through our food. We haven't really discussed yes. that. Yeah. So um, if you think about foods, the, uh, the order of level of deuterium concentration in them, fats are the lowest of all. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's, and again, I should preface this by natural um, derived fats, right? And, and animal protein that are coming from animals that were allowed to live their authentic habitat and have the diet that they're supposed to have. 
Um, and then it's green vegetables because they are also lower in deuterium because of the process of photosynthesis. So if you think of it, and then we started getting into the fruits and the um, uh, grains, they are higher in deuterium levels. And then um, any processed foods, any GMO foods, um, coconut water, for instance, is actually very high in um, deuterium because the coconut fruit um, places all of its deuterium in the water and makes the fat low deuterium. So keep that, that in sense. mind because <laughs> people love to use that as a hydration fluid, but it's not a great choice. Um, so that's the food piece. So um, consuming a seasonal, local, low carbohydrate or ketogenic type diet, you know, make sure that you become um, adapted to either using either fuel, but mostly try to, to become adapted to using fats and yeah. um, no, you have that flexibility. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. No. What about proteins? Would you just often recommend getting those proteins with the fats since that's often how they occur naturally in nature? Yeah, exactly. Choose, you know, um, fattier cuts of those animal proteins, I, I would suggest. Yeah. So fatty fish, um, certain fattier cuts of meats. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't shy away from it. <laughs> that's, that's where the gold is, you know. Um, and so then fasting, both water and intermittent fasting can be very helpful in helping you lower levels. Um, it would be great, of course, if you can do a fast with deuterium depleted water as well at the same time. That would be very helpful. Um, yeah. Molecular hydrogen gas inhalation um, can be very useful in depleting it straight from the brain and the lungs as well. Um, I, I, yep, I like that very much. Um, no, maybe a side note there really mm -hmm, quick. Is, mm -hmm. um, I know this is becoming pretty big is those hydrogen tablets or just hydrogen water. Is that naturally deuterium depleted? Like, or, or I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, is that hydrogen real hydrogen or is it actually possibly deuterium as well? Yeah, so it is. That That's the key to that piece. I don't know how much hydrogen, uh, how much deuterium is coming in with them as well. That That's the key to it. So I would have to test those waters and look at them. I know that people have had, you know, they have reported benefit of the hydrogen tablets, but I do think that um, there's some case to be made that you, it's kind of like a Trojan horse and you're producing the, um, the metabolic water in your bloodstream or in, your, in, in certain tissues where you're not supposed to, you don't want to, you want it to happen in the mitochondria. So there's that piece to it. Um, yeah. Um, so sunlight and photon biomodulation, those are very, very useful. Um, having a fever is actually really good. It, it helps you deplete. So um, don't take Tylenol or ibuprofen. Let the fever pass. I mean, this is not medical advice by any um, way, shape or form. Please consult with your doctor. But, um, it, you know, ha having an increase in temperature fulfills a very specific role and it uh, tends to deplete the germ from very specific areas where you need to. So um, consider having it. Um, cold thermogenesis is also very beneficial. Um, I'm sure you've come across that in all of your research, right? Um, and then 
there's cannabinoids um, and certain phytotherapies, certain plants will preferentially um, bind hydrogens and then come into the body and, and pull out deuterium. Really? Um, yep. And there's certain probiotics that will do the same. Um, and um, we know that certain pharmaceuticals from the literature that have also the, the ability to deplete deuterium in very specific places. So um, those are all ways to think about how you can lower levels or regulate them from there on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I also really like the idea that you mentioned probiotics and that just it ties back perfectly with the idea that gut microbiome, if you have a healthy gut, seems like you're already depleting a lot of that naturally. But if, if you're starting with an unhealthy gut, you might even just be adding to the deuterium because of those yes. pathogens. So that's, that's right. really interesting. Yeah. And then I know I'm uh, putting you on the spot here. Did you have any um, any of those herbs or phytonutrients that are particularly helpful for like depleting the deuterium? Yeah. So um, if you think about um, certain constituents that are extremely useful, um, like, uh, let's, let's look at parsley, let's look at cilantro, let's look at, um, olive leaf, uh, resveratrol. Resveratrol has a very interesting, um, uh, extra property that it, it um, upregulates the beta oxidation of fatty acids. So it increases the production of metabolic water in that sense. Um, it does as in um, very efficiently. So, uh, yeah, there's many plants that do it for different reasons. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, most plants will have, uh, as I said, through the process of photosynthesis, be lower in deuterium, and it becomes a low deuterium substrate for your mitochondria. And then there's, of course, all the properties that such plants may have as well. Um, so, yeah. No, that, that's awesome. And you left us with so many different strategies. And I mean, a lot of it just ties together so perfectly. Like I, I'm honestly, I really love the concept of uh, deuterium and learning more about it. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. And uh, keep learning because there's so much more and there will be so much more coming very soon because every day we are discovering new ways and we do interpretate new, you know, existing data in new ways that we now know how to look at it. So it's, it's all really, it's all fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. And thank you so much to our audience for tuning in today. I know you will absolutely love this conversation just as much as I did. So thanks for tuning in and we will see you in the next one. The content provided by The Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, The Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, 
Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.